Since Russia escalated its incursion into Ukraine just over six months ago, we've grown accustomed to seeing Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky propagandize from a bunker or some undisclosed location on his phone, on a computer. That's how he addressed Congress back in March. That's how he appeared at the Grammys back in April. Remember that? His wartime leadership and propaganda machine has felt a lot like hearing from your boss on Zoom during the pandemic, but not today. Today, Zelensky made an unannounced visit to Izum, a small town in eastern Ukraine that the country just reclaimed in a hugely successful counteroffensive against Russia. And he said the Ukrainian flag would return to every city and village in this country. This counteroffensive has a lot of people asking whether Ukraine's winning now, and it's got a lot of people feeling like Putin's blowing it, including a whole lot of people in Russia. More on all that ahead on Today Explained. Ukraine, Ukraine Explained. Today Explained, Ramos Verum here with Mary Alushna, who covers Russia for the Washington Post. She's going to help us understand what just happened in Ukraine and why it's making Putin look real bad. In the past few weeks, Ukraine has been uh, undertaking this counteroffensive, and they have achieved some really remarkable results, which it appears that even Ukraine didn't really expect to achieve. Major news from Ukraine tonight, troops driving Russian forces further back. Ukraine's stunning offensive in the east, freeing 150,000 people from Russian rule in just days, according to officials. And they managed to regain more land than Russia was able to take since April. So all these months, Russia has been moving pretty incrementally. They've been taking smaller villages, smaller settlements, but they have not been able to take any big cities or the key hubs that they were hoping to take much, much earlier in the campaign. And Ukraine retook really important parts in the Kharkiv region. When Vladimir Putin declared war on Ukraine nearly seven months ago, his troops seized massive chunks of Kharkiv. But in just a matter of days, Ukrainian forces have blitzed through Russia's gains, snatching back huge swaths of land. What that means is that they were able to cut off a lot of the supply lines of the Russian military um, and also deplete Russian uh, forces there that were responsible for this direction, which makes it really hard for Russia uh, to not even you know, do offensive operations there in the near future, but also to hold their ground. Where did this counteroffensive come from? You said it's been in the works for a while now? Yes. So obviously one of the goals for Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, was to not only kick Russia out, but also retake the lands that it already took at the beginning of the campaign. We've already lost too many people to simply cede our territory. But obviously, you know, it needs a lot of preparation because Russia has a very significant force and Ukraine is outnumbered in many ways. So it took a lot of preparation. And also there was a report by The Guardian that Ukraine also, you know, employed this tactic of saying the counteroffensive is going to be happening any minute and sort of keeping Russia on its toes, but also saying that the counteroffensive is going to take place in different locations that actually happen. The counteroffensive that we're witnessing in Kherson right now is not the only counteroffensive underway in this country. I can't discuss details of uh, any military actions. I think that uh, uh, 
information silence is important. So I want uh, that uh, the enemy gets some surprises from us. Sort of tricking Russia into regrouping its forces and sort of spreading them out in a way that allowed Ukraine to concentrate in the Kharkiv region and, you know, achieve all these remarkable gains that they have. And tonight, that surprise paying off. Ukrainian flags flying again over key strategic cities. How did they do it? How did Ukraine take more land than Russia has taken in months over the course of a weekend? You know, that's what's been surprising, obviously, because they moved really, really quickly. Um, and there are reports that sort of Russian forces were really fleeing the area, banning a lot of the equipment. So they were definitely ambushed. It's a humiliating defeat for Vladimir Putin's men, forced to flee, abandoning key supply hubs like Kupiansk and Izium. Also, I think what played a really important part here is that the, a lot of the problems that have been accumulating in the Russian army uh, really, you know, came to light here, which is that they've been using a lot of the same units for a really long time without letting them rest, which made the force really exhausted. So it's very difficult for them to, you know, launch offensive and, and you know, and do counteroffensives as well. But also there were a lot of reports that Russia is losing a lot of equipment. Some of the equipment is really out of commission from the get-go and it's not able to perform really well. They left all their explosives and ammunition here, said this Ukrainian soldier, as the Russian front line collapsed. These two things sort of happened all at once, which allowed Ukraine to, you know, execute this really remarkable operation. The United States provides battlefield intelligence to help Ukrainians defend their country. There's been reporting that the West has helped Ukraine plan this counteroffensive. How much do you know about that? Yeah, it's been reported that U.S. officials and generally the Western intelligence community is helping Ukraine with targets. Ukraine combines information that we and other partners provide with the intelligence that they themselves are gathering on the battlefield. There's obviously a really important balance here to note is that U.S. especially has been very careful in making sure Ukraine doesn't strike far into Russian territory because that would mean really a direct attack on Russia and that could have really bad consequences. But they have been helping with intelligence assessments and providing information. The U.S. explicitly has helped Ukraine kill Russians. They provided intelligence that helped the Ukrainians, we are told, shoot down a Russian transport full of hundreds of Russian soldiers. And that's just one of many examples. Um, it's, it's an important relationship that uh, our sources say has really affected the course of this war. Russia always read it as, look, this is the Washington directly fighting against uh, Russia, and Russia is now up against the entire NATO alliance bloc because, obviously, of the weapons supplies, but also this um, help uh, from the intelligence community. So they're trying to, you know, walk across a really tight rope here in, in terms of balancing how much they help Ukraine and how much they anger Russia. So whether that balance is going to change after this counteroffensive is a very interesting question, a very important question, whether you know U.S. will be more comforting in doing that or not. Ukraine's counteroffensive has most recently been focused on Kharkiv and, and the area surrounding it. How important is Kharkiv strategically for Ukraine? It is very important because obviously the Russian border is very nearby. It's next to Belgrade region, which has been seeing some drone strikes and, you know, weird explosions that they've explained as 
accidental fires, but the understanding is that Ukraine has shown that it can reach into that area. Um, what it also means is that for Russia, it will be quite difficult to um, take all of the Donetsk um, region that they've been you know, hoping to um, add to the separatist republic there. Um, and more importantly, it really disrupted the logistics because a lot of the supply lines, there were a lot of key junctures in that area. And for the Russian side, it obviously has been probably the biggest blow um, of this entire campaign. How are people in this region, Kharkiv, responding to Ukraine reasserting its control? There were a lot of videos emerging of people, residents coming out of their houses and welcoming Ukrainian forces and, you know, saying that they've been waiting for them for a really long time. And, you know, that is a really triumphant moment. Relieved residents embraced their liberators and offered the Ukrainian soldiers pancakes for unshackling them from Russian oppression. Well, we also know that there is a certain group of people who collaborate with the Russians there. A lot of those people have fled to the Belgrade region in Russia, which borders, obviously, Ukraine. They did that, you know, out of concern that they might be targeted for helping Russians there. So the population that sort of remained there is welcoming the Ukrainian forces. Kharkiv region has a pretty big Russian-speaking population, but that necessarily doesn't mean that they are welcoming Russian forces to take their land and, you know, attach it to a different country. Well, what's Russia doing in the short term? How has it so far responded to this counteroffensive? Publicly, Russia hasn't even really acknowledged much of the Ukrainian successes. Huh. Russia's official line is that they didn't retreat, they regrouped. And they regrouped to focus in the Donetsk area, um, the one that I mentioned that they want to sort of regain in full. I asked Russia's deputy foreign minister, with his country losing ground in Ukraine, was it time to admit that the invasion had been a miscalculation? Clearly not. We're moving forward steadily and consistently to fulfill all the tasks of the special military operation. As we've said several times, they will be achieved. They're responding with more strikes, more aggression, but whether that's actually going to you know, strategically change the situation in that particular area is again remains to be seen. Hmm. How important is the timing of this breakthrough from Ukraine, this counteroffensive? I know in Europe there's a lot of fears about what this war might mean for the winter, for, for energy costs, for energy availability. How important is it that Ukraine succeed right now? Well, it's important for both sides. For Ukraine, um, you know, they need to prove that all the weapons and aid they're getting from the West not only helps deter Russia further, but also shows that their assertion that they can win this war is true and has sort of real basis behind it. Because that's something they've been, you know, saying this is crucial for them. They want their whole territory back um, the way it was before February 24th. Russia has been betting on this war of attrition. They're hoping that, um, you know, because they obviously have gas and oil supplies and Europe is quite um, reliant on those supplies, that them cutting and sort of using it as a bargaining chip will force Europeans to put pressure on their governments to stop helping Ukraine and sort of forget about Ukraine because of their energy bills skyrocketing. That's the 
bet that Russia is you know, making, and that's their gamble here. And we've already heard a lot from um, Russian sort of state TV anchors and correspondents saying that they've had a really tough weekend trying to cope with the strategic loss that they've had. But by Monday, sort of the beginning of the week, they've uh, recuperated and said that really, you know, the dominance in the overall war is Russia's and that the time is playing in their favor. And what they mean is that they hope to wear out Ukraine, wear out uh, Europe, and they hope that the support for Ukraine will wane. So that's why, again, for Ukraine, it's really important to show that actually they're capable of really, really good strategic counteroffensives. How humiliating all this is for Vladimir Putin in a minute on Today Explained. Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Sometimes you see a really good sale, a really good deal, and you think, huh, what's the catch? You may be used to seeing, quote unquote, great deals from overpriced wireless providers and thinking, what's the catch? With Mint Mobile, they say, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explained. That's mintmobile.com slash explained. You could cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. $45 upfront payment is required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 GB on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Che Explained comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Today Explained, here with Mary Alushna. You cover Russia for the Washington Post. Let's talk about Russia. How embarrassing is all this for Vladimir Putin? It is pretty embarrassing because his main brand and the one that he's been building for the past 20 years is that he knows what he's doing. He always gets the job done. In this case, we see even people who are extremely pro-Kremlin, extremely pro this invasion, saying that they don't like the way Russia goes about this and they don't like the planning. We've heard from, you know, people like the leader of the Communist Party saying that Russia is not really fighting anymore in the special operation. It is an actual war. And the very use of the word war to describe this invasion has been essentially banned by Russia. You know, people get fined or even jailed for talking about the war out in the open. They have to call it special military operations. So we've definitely seen a lot of criticism coming from the very pro-Putin, very hawkish camp. That is a very new development that, you know, we'll have to see whether that will push the Kremlin to change anything in the way they go about this invasion. 
Tell me more of what we've been hearing in terms of criticism of this war in Russia. Last weekend, just when the news broke that Russia lost um, a lot of this land and retreated, the usually quite unanimous choir of pro-Kremlin and state propagandist voices was really in disarray. The politician says those people who convinced Putin the special operation would be over quickly, they took us for a ride. Some people chose to completely ignore the news because they didn't know how to handle it. You know, some outlets, like the Kremlin's official newspaper, just did not report on this at all. Um, Some very prominent TV shows started to say that, look, Russia is not just fighting against uh, Ukraine, it's fighting against the entire NATO alliance. That's why they're having such a hard time doing that. We want to defeat Ukrainian army. It seems like it's practically impossible. Because it's strong army, really strong army, and Ukrainians are supported by by practically all the European countries. Some people use it as a way to call for more aggression. So they want Putin and Kremlin to be even more aggressive, retaliate against Ukraine, hit civilian targets, and just do more. They believe that the way Russia is waging this war now is not enough. They want general mobilization. They want all country to be set on this war path, and they want to go all out. So there's a lot of really conflicting messaging going on in the camp that is usually really pro-Putin and follows the sort of the party line. Some of the like liberal and opposition forces have, have been also trying to seize in that moment. You know, there's been a pretty remo- remarkable effort from local lawmakers to um, collect signs uh, among officials on this regional level to call for Putin's resignation and accuse him of treason. And there are already facing, um, you know, administrative offenses and fines, and the police has launched an investigation. They say that basically the goal, they believe they achieved the goal, which is to tell um, a lot of anti-war Russians who are still in the country that they're not alone. They know that Putin's not going to read this request and say, look, yes, exactly, you're right, I should stop doing this. But they want to get the word out that there's still some resistance. And even though there are big risks in um, you know, presenting this resistance in the public, they're still willing to do that. Tell me more about Vladimir Putin's decision to not hold a draft, to not conscript more Russians into this war. In terms of general mobilization, the problem with that is going to be really unpopular because what has been working so far is that a lot of Russians, you know, we can debate the numbers of how many support or how many are against the war, but the main consensus is that they're trying to tune this out. They try to live their life as normal, putting the whole country, because that means not only drafting all the eligible men, that means resetting the whole economy and making, turning the whole country into this war machine that has to only work for the advancement of the front line. And that would have a lot of repercussions because what Putin, again, has been promising Russians for a long time is this concept of stability. Is that as long as you stay out of politics, you can have your house, your job, you can, you know, live a normal life. He came into the presidency at the end of 1999, promising to make Russia a great power again. He was very much in contrast uh, to Boris Yeltsin, uh, his predecessor, um, as president, who was kind of known as a bit of a drunk. Uh, Vladimir Putin represented a a fresh face. He didn't drink. Uh, Russia was virtually a failed state. 
Putin was able to restore an element of order out of this chaos, an element of prosperity out of misery, and an element of international respect out of humiliation. And that's something would a lot of Russians sort of cling on to. And it would be a pretty huge political decision to change all that and take that away. So he has been resisting that. And instead, they have been seeking really alternative and creative ways to draft people. The Kremlin has responded with the launch of an extensive campaign to recruit volunteers to fight on TV, social media and billboards. They've promised huge sums of money and other perks, but many are given little or no training and are sent straight to the front line. And there is a concept of sort of shadow mobilization that's happening in Russia. What is shadow mobilization? So that means there are several private military companies. They're basically mercenaries that are fighting on behalf of the Russian Federation in Ukraine, but not officially with the defense ministry, even though it is sort of giving them the orders and places them in places where they need them. And they have been, you know, responsible for a lot of the, you know, very... You know, crucial gains that Russia had in this campaign. That also gives Russia some, you know, plausible deniability because there's conscripts fighting and they don't have to really acknowledge them among the losses. And another thing they have been doing is is conscripting people from prisons. So there, there are multiple reports in there. These military, private military companies go to prisons and they offer people deals. Basically, if they go to the front uh, in six months, if they survive, they'll get a pardon. And they're specifically looking for people who have been, you know, accused of murder, of, you know, violent crimes. Um, so that's how they've avoided a general draft. Whether that's going to be enough now, again, a big question. Do Russians have any idea that they're, they're prisoners, they're, they're murderers and thieves are fighting this war for them in Ukraine? I think majority does not know about this because it's obviously now covered by the national media because it's, you know, very controlled. Um, there are multiple human rights organizations that are working to help these convicts because the convicts are not given any guarantees because mercenary service is outlawed in Russia. It's illegal. Nothing is written on paper. So their rights are also being violated by this. But a lot of these groups have been recognized as foreign agents in Russia, so they can operate on a wider scale and inform the general public about this effectively. And it's really difficult to do so. So I think the majority does not know about this. Do we have any idea what Putin's plans are to regain footing in Ukraine, if any? The planning is really not public in any way. We don't really even know who is the overall commander of this operation in Ukraine. We know, obviously, there's defense minister, but there's somebody who's supposed to navigate all of that on the ground and be really hands-on. And Russia has not even publicly announced who that person is. So it's all really, really secretive. And we can glean things from, you know, social media, through some of the, you know, soldiers who speak out, or some of the you know, intelligent assessments from the other side. So it's quite difficult to analyze what Russia is going to do next. We know that they have some reserve forces, but they're also needed in some other areas. So we don't know exactly if they're going to be sent to Kharkiv to regain any footing. A lot of their battalion tactical groups have been depleted of forces throughout this campaign, and they have been sort of uh, kind of a minced salad, and they've been throwing them together from different parts and trying to reassemble all these groups. But what that means is that the chain of command is really disrupted, and it's difficult to control all these groups because they're really don't have any combat experience together. So that makes it difficult for them to quickly respond and efficiently respond to all these targets. How significant is this all told? I mean, 
This conflict escalated just over six months ago. It felt like Ukraine surprised the world by by making it last six months, though there have certainly been any number of low points for Ukraine throughout. But now it seems like they've got the upper hand. All things aside, it is obviously very important. What is by now appears to be clear is that the fact that Russia thought Ukraine is a really weak country that's not going to sort of rally together and that the Ukrainian forces you know, haven't spent the last eight years training with Western officers um, in vain, but they actually learned a lot of things and became much stronger than they were in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea. So all these things, I think, were not taken into account, which is showing now. It's showing. What's going to happen is obviously difficult to predict, especially when we have very little information coming publicly out of Moscow. But I think it's we shouldn't underestimate it as well. You know, it's maybe too early to say that this is the end, that this is the turning point, but we should also not underestimate it. Mary Alushna, Washington Post. Our show today was brought to you by Miles Bryan, Amanda Llewellyn, Paul Robert Mounsey, and Matthew Collette. Vox, we were fact-checked by Serena Solon. It's Today Explained. <laughs> 